Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Community Church Online. My name's Pete, and it's really good to be here. If it's your first time with us, uh, we share something. This is my first time in front of the camera, and it's taught me that the people behind the scenes are doing an amazing job to bring this to you week in and week out. Over the last six weeks or so, we've had some tremendous changes in life in Australia, and, um, and they've had an impact on how we do church, and one thing that I've really taken out of this is it's really emphasised to us that we are the church. Not that we come to church, but that we are the church. The series that we're in the middle of is a series called Healthy Church. It's been taken from Titus, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 2. If you'd like to find that, um, while you do, I'll just do a quick recap from last week. Last week we saw that the two main concerns that Paul was contending with for this early group of believers in first century Crete was one was coming from outside. The prevailing culture of the time was one of dishonesty and evil and brutality and self-indulgence. And there was this young church, these new believers, and they were trying to find their way and understand how they might live out this faith in that environment. The culture of the day threatened the believers. And so Paul, through Titus, was outlining how to live a godly life in an ungodly culture. The second major concern came from within. There were those wanting to impose man-made rules and traditions, and they sought to set up religious practices that put an additional burden on these new believers. And Paul was in no mood for it. He knew what it had cost Jesus to bring about a grace-based new covenant and to do away with the old ways of the law and religion. With this as our backdrop, we saw Paul introduce himself in this way in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. As we look at chapter 2 today, we'll see both the knowledge and that truth being expressed and how to lead a life that leads to live a life that leads to godliness. It shows how a healthy church should look. So let's dive into chapter 2. In verse 1, Paul says that Titus must teach and he insists on doing that according to a sound doctrine. The emphasis on sound doctrine here is really important because the early church wasn't getting it from anywhere. They weren't getting it from outside, from the prevailing culture of the day, nor from the false teachers who were inside imposing their religious observances. I wonder, at the moment, in our current times, who you're listening to. Are you tuning your attention to sound doctrine? It's a natural human instinct at times like this to look for clarity and direction to help us through. We rely on leaders and experts to provide information and a roadmap for the future. We look for hope and we stay close to those who might provide it for us. Our challenge as believers at the moment is to ask ourselves, are we listening to sound doctrine? The people of Crete needed it in a tumultuous time and we need it now too. A healthy church must teach and promote sound doctrine. Into the events 
of first century Mediterranean culture, Paul made the following directives for a healthy church's life. Let's examine them in verses 2 through 10. Oh, and by the way, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if your mother-in-law sent you this link or your mate said you've got to come and watch this, you can tune out for a little while because what we're about to read really only relates to Christians. We'll come back to you later though. So let's dive in here at verse 2. Paul says, Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive. There's something in that for most of us. Here's a summary. Have a look at the parts that relate to you. Let me ask you a question. As you look at the list most relevant to you, which of these are still applicable and relevant to you in the 21st century? Are all of them or just most of them? Hold that thought. How about putting the ones that you think apply, still apply to you on the mirror in the bathroom this week and go to work on them? I'm going to, so I'll join you in that. One word of caution here. If you're an older man, you can't write the list for your wife or for your child. And if you're a kid watching this, you can't write the list for your dad. It's his job. Anyway, check the list and decide what's going on the mirror. It's a challenge to work through these instructions and to know which ones are timeless and which ones were directly related to the culture of the day. What do we say about the statement about slaves? Some people liken that to a worker and a boss scenario, but that's not a fair or a complete comparison. You see, in the first century, a slave was someone's possession, as was the offspring that those slaves produced. In our modern day times, we at least have some choice as to who we work for and if we like, and if they're a bad boss, we could leave. In the first century, it also appears that households were more, uh, household roles were more defined than they might be today, or at least defined in a different way. What do you take from the passage if you're a single woman who works? Are you still to remain busy at home? What if you're a childless couple or a single stay-at-home dad? I'll leave you to work this out at home. In fact, it'd be a great discussion over lunch or dinner. So there you have it. 
There's Paul's instructions for healthy living for those in Crete in the first century. There'd be a huge risk, however, if we just stopped there, if we just put those things on the mirror and went to work on them. For one, we'd likely fail. And secondly, at this stage, we haven't yet understood why. So take a moment and ask yourself, why would Paul issue these instructions? The answer to that question is embedded in three so that statements that we read. Remember that one of Paul's concerns was that the religious leaders were imposing man-made Jewish um, traditions and overlaying them on the faith that they had uh, that they'd experienced. And we could make the same mistake if we're not careful. If we just made a list of role-defined behaviours and insisted on them for their own sake, we could misunderstand the grace of God and the reason that Paul was driving at for living that way. We could inadvertently become an unhealthy church. We could look at the directions given to younger women and build a set of well-meaning rules, even unwritten ones, about their role in the home or their subjectivity to their husbands. We could make an argument for thinking that the young men got off lightly. And we could assume that only women, older women, are permitted to teach the younger women. We could, as many Christians did, and particularly in the southern states of America, build an argument for entrenching slavery into our culture. Now, none of those things are apt. And if we did those things, we could completely miss the point of why they were mentioned in the first place. The reality is that these things were common in culture in the first century in Crete, but they weren't encouraged without reason. Let's look at the three reasons that Paul gives Titus for these things. These are the so that's. Let's look firstly at his response in the instructions to young women. And we read in verse 5, the second part, it's so that no one will malign the word of God. Paul was aware that if young women in that day acted in particular ways, presumably the ways of the prevailing culture, that people would hear them profess a faith, then live a different way, and then when their faith and their actions weren't aligned, that they would malign the faith and they would see that their primary roles of, of parent and spouse, wife and mother, did not line up with the faith that they professed. In a way, Paul is saying, young women, your marriage and your parenting is a great way to reach others. So live this way. So to our current young women, if you think about your friends and your family that don't know Jesus, what aspects of your life, what are your primary roles and what do you think need attention in order that no one would see your life and malign the word of God? It may not be about being busy at home. You may work or run a business and share duties at home with someone else. In our society today, loving our husbands and our children, if we have them, being self-controlled and pure, are all culturally accepted, even if they're not practised. But being busy at home and subject to your husband needs some working through in today's context. 
So a great conversation for you to have would be how does this play out in our culture? How do I do family life in such a way that no one will malign the word of God? Our second so that is found in verse 8b. After Paul urges Titus to set a high benchmark in his teaching and behaviour, he says, giving context to that, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. We will have people say bad things about us. Titus would presumably be spending a lot of time with the younger men in his role and teaching them. And he was no doubt going to face opposition both from the Jewish leaders and from the lawless locals. And Paul encourages Titus to keep a strong personal disciplines for the sake of his message and his ministry. This is an important encouragement to any of us who lead. We must keep our personal disciplines in check. I know when I fail to do this, I undermine my leadership. I weaken my witness and I ultimately find myself coming back to God in humility and asking for forgiveness. You see, people watch our actions and we need to walk in ways that are consistent with our faith so that no one who opposes us may have anything bad to say about us. We find one more so that and the third so that is found in the second half of verse 10 and it's found in reference to the slave group it says so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our saviour attractive in the absence of slavery in our culture today do we simply dismiss this aspect this part that Paul was talking about if we hold fast to the earlier parts claiming that none of them are cultural what what do we make of this? A helpful way of viewing this and in keeping with Paul's original intent might be to say that we're all subject to someone at some part of our life. It may be at work or at school. We're certainly subject under the law and we're feeling that at the moment. Or maybe even just in a team environment. And so how we respond to authority over us, even if we have some freedom whether to accept that or not, in those situations, our honesty, our work ethic and our desire to, to achieve results is a solid witness. In fact, the very reason Paul gave the slaves this instruction was so that they might make the teaching about God, our saviour, attractive. We can aim to do the same. Do you think these instructions about honesty and work ethic are open only to slaves? What should we do with this so that? I think that we should live in such a way so that we make the teaching of Jesus attractive. And we need to stop here for a moment too. Even though we might understand the why or the so that, the reason behind the things that we saw in verses 1 through 10, we might still be unwise to leave things there if we did we might fall into another trap we could still produce an unhealthy church we might think 
that we have to do all of these things in our own strength. Another trap that the early church fell into and one that still plagues us today if we're not careful. So what does a healthy church like look like in this regard? Well, let's look at the remainder of this chapter. It holds not only the answer to this, but the key to reforming our lives and to living the types of lives that are outlined in verses 1 through 10. Here's verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Okay, if your mate or your mother-in-law got you onto this, now's the time to come back and listen. It is only the grace of God that makes any of this possible. In fact, it's the only thing that makes it worth contemplating. And God himself has made this amazing offer of grace and salvation to all people, Christian or not. If you're watching today and you don't know what this means, but you're slightly interested, I would love you to talk to a friend. I would love you to find out the reality of this statement because behind it, there is a, there is a God who is madly keen on having a relationship with you and spending eternity with all who would choose to join him. For all of us, it's helpful to read this part of the chapter and then go back and read the first part again. We can't live the the type of lives described in verses 1 through 10 without being recipients of this grace. Listen to what this grace does. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. There's a way that I see this passage play out in my own life. It says, in effect, that it's nice to be guided and encouraged to put the sticky labels on the mirror about the earlier statements, but I've never managed that in my own strength. What I find in my experience is that in knowing Jesus and when I'm walking closely with him, my inclination is to want to do the things more, the things that he wants me to do more and more, and they become more natural. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness and the worldly passions and he teaches all of us how to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives as we manage our way through this thing that we call life. But it still doesn't end there. Listen to the heart of the gospel here, this beautiful statement. It helps us to live more upright lives but it's much deeper than that listen listen closely verse 13 while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good our heavenly father made it possible for us to draw near to him, to secure our eternity and to become a people that are his very own. That's the mark of a healthy church. 
It's not a building and we can't meet at the building that we normally meet at anyway. It's not a program and many of those have been postponed. It's about a people who have received his grace, who've been transformed from the inside out and as a result are compelled to live lives of love and that are pure and eager to do what is good. And no social lockdown can stop that. In fact, if you're an optimist, you will see opportunity after opportunity in this global event to help us to be that church more and to be the type of church that God has always called his people to be. A healthy church in an unhealthy environment. A group of believers in a broken world. It was, his, it was the plea of Paul to the church in Crete and it's equally the plea to the 21st century Christians in West Gippsland. So my question is, what will we do with all of this today? Two thoughts to finish on here. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, would you consider something today? Is it possible that the call of our culture, the freedom, the money, the power, the lifestyle, has been more attractive to you than what you think God has on offer? Has doing your own thing seemed better Uh, seemed a better bet for you? Can I ask right at this moment, is that promise being delivered? We have a tiny microscopic virus that is shutting down those freedoms and that lifestyle right at the moment. Is the offer of the world a good long-term bet? If this tiny organism can take that down, even temporarily, Are those promises that the culture makes our best bet? And what else could take it down? Or maybe you're not a Christian because of exactly what Paul was talking about in this letter. Maybe for you, it's religion that bothers you. And I think it should bother you if the type of religion that you've been exposed to is a list of rules and man-made regulations and an absence of love and compassion and an absence of hope. If I were you, I'd be running a million miles from that. But can I ask you just for a moment, what about if Jesus is asking you into a friendship and one that has the power to take your life to a new sense of meaning and provide you with a sense of hope and purpose that you have never understood before and that will give you the deepest sense of peace that you could ever imagine. That's what Paul was getting at when he spoke about this blessed hope. And if that appeals to your heart in any way, can I encourage you to talk to a Christian friend or to contact the church and just have a conversation? And if you are a follower of Jesus, here's a thought for us to finish on. As I've been talking today, have you been thinking more about the things you should be doing? Have you been thinking about the list that might go on the mirror? Or would you say you've been more drawn into that, a reminder of that amazing grace 
that God pours into your life. You see, only one of those things is going to help us, in, help us to be that type of church that Paul is imploring the church at Crete to be. Only one will result in the so-that's that were described earlier. Our works won't do it. Only grace will. Let's be encouraged and reminded of just how beautiful and amazing the grace of God is and be reminded of the huge transformation that it makes in our lives and in our church. As a church, let's be the church and not just go to church. Let's be a healthy church, full of grace and a blessed hope, compelled by love to do good works, living upright lives in a challenging culture, loving people deeply so that others may come to know Jesus. And as we're doing that, let's take courage from Paul's last statement to Titus in this chapter. He says, These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. God bless you and I hope you have a great week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to change our lives and to create healthy communities that you called your church. Thank you that that can only be done through the amazing gift that you gave, your life for us, a ransom. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in knowing you, our lives can be completely transformed and we can live the types of lives that have been described here. We ask that as we continue to navigate these times, that you would make us a healthy church with healthy families and healthy people. We ask, Lord Jesus, that we would come before you again today with grateful hearts and acknowledge who you are and give you all of our love. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.